you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Exodus. We are nearing the end of our section in Exodus on the Ten Commandments. We are looking this evening at the Eighth Commandment, so eight of ten. There's just two more left to us. Our text this evening is going to focus once again on a short text in Exodus 20, verse 15. But I do think that this evening is a good opportunity for us to review and recapitulate these Ten Commandments. So as I read the text this evening, I'm going to actually begin at the beginning of chapter 20 and read down through our text in verse 15. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. By your Spirit, illuminate your word so that it may reach down into our very souls. That we might not just hear it and understand it, but that we may be changed by it. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Why are laws so complex? You just heard me read through in a matter of a few minutes, eight of the Ten Commandments, very brief. And yet in our experience, laws are exceedingly long and complex. 
Back in the days when I was an attorney and you would go into a law library, whether it's at a school or at a law firm, you could go and see shelving upon shelving upon shelving of book after book after book that just contained the federal code. Not commentaries on the federal code, not the federal registry, just simply actual laws, volume after volume after volume. Why is this the case? I want to put it to you this evening that the reason laws are so complex is not so that they are expansive, but it's rather because they're so limited. They are constantly filled with exceptions. A good example of this would be our tax code. Perhaps you've seen uh, a politician make a point to his audience by bringing out the tax code several feet high and slamming the books on the table and saying something like, do we really need this much legislation to raise revenue? But of course, that amount of, of legislation is not to raise revenue, it's to exclude revenue. It's to say what things are not taxable and in what instances they're not taxable and what the exceptions are to the exceptions. This is not true with the law of God. The law of God is simple and broad. And once again, as we come to this commandment, the eighth commandment, we have but two words in the Hebrew. Translated properly into four words in English. You shall not steal. There are not a plethora of exceptions or explanations, or excuses. No, it is a broad commandment that covers us once again. So what I would like us to do this evening is first to look at the obvious violations of this commandment, something that we would all understand and agree are violations of the Eighth Commandment. And then I'd like to look at the more subtle violations, things that may not have occurred to us how the commandment reaches us. And then finally, I'd like to conclude by coming to the heart, by asking the question, why is it that we break this commandment? Obvious violations, subtle violations. And then some thoughts about why we break this commandment. Let's begin then with the obvious violations. Well, I think the very first thing that comes to our mind is theft. Criminal theft, taking something from someone else, outright theft. And this is, of course, covered in this commandment. Just in the next chapter, Exodus 21, Moses gives us more detailed laws about theft. Or excuse me, in Exodus 22, we read in the beginning of Exodus 22, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So what we see here is, if someone takes something that another person owns, it is criminal theft, and it is a violation of God's law. Now you have to understand that in the society in which Israel lived, the most valuable thing you could have was livestock. In our day and age, we might say, if you steal diamonds, or money, 
or cars. But to the Israelites, the most valuable thing they have, what they lived on, was livestock. And so Moses gives us that example. If you take something that another person needs to live, that's another person's property, that is the value of someone else, that's a violation of this commandment. Now, I want you to notice that the very fact that this commandment exists and that it is a violation to take something that someone else owns proves to us the biblical nature of private property. If we all owned everything in common, there could be no such thing as stealing. And so if anyone ever tells you that private property is unbiblical, ungodly, and wrong, take them to the Eighth Commandment. Because God takes private property very seriously. As a matter of fact, if you steal an ox, God says you have to repay five times. Not just give it back five times. If you steal a sheep, you have to repay four times. You have to give back what you have taken and then some. Now, I want you to note the difference then between the biblical nature of dealing with theft and our way of dealing with theft. When was the last time you saw this principle applied in America? Someone stole your phone... They have to give you back four. Tell them someone took your car, they got to give you three. Or the equivalent thereof. Have you ever heard of anything like that? No, of course not. This was not always the way in America. Originally, laws around theft were about fining and retribution and reimbursement. So if you took something from someone else, you had to restore it and make them whole, and then some. But we slowly moved away from that to incarceration. And you can see what that's done to our society. When someone steals something, they feel no obligation toward the person that they've stolen from. And then they have to be put in jail and to be cared for at whose expense? Yours. When which... In jail is often a learning school of more crime. Wouldn't it make more sense to follow the biblical model and to have people restore, to give them an opportunity to work and to earn and to restore and to be healthy? I think the Bible can teach us something here. Now, don't think that this is just an Old Testament command, that the New Testament in the New Testament now, we have everything in common and private property doesn't exist anymore. No, no, no. If you were to think that, Jesus has a word for you. And his word comes in Matthew 19, verse 18, in which Jesus tells us, you shall not steal. He repeats that command. And I think that's deliberately by the Lord to remind us that there is no division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have one book from God. It comes in two testaments, but there is no great distinction, no gulf affixed between them. And Paul follows his Lord Jesus in Romans 13, and he tells us once again, do not steal. This is an important command. 
We read it here in Exodus 20. We see it again in Deuteronomy 5. We see other laws in, in the Pentateuch. We see it repeated by Jesus in the Gospel and Paul in the letter to the Romans. This is not something that we can say God is unclear on. He's very clear about this obvious violation of criminal theft. Now, the problem, though, with focusing upon this is what we've seen over and over again. If we just focus on the obvious violations, criminal theft, we tend to say to ourselves, well, I'm not a criminal. I haven't held up a bank ever. I haven't thought about knocking over a liquor store. I haven't hot-wired a car. I'm not going to do this. And this was how the Pharisees looked at this commandment. They had easy targets. Tax collectors and Romans were thieves. All the time, they stole things that were not theirs. The way that the Romans collected taxes were they told the tax collector, we want so much in revenue from the people. Anything more you collect, you get to keep. You can see where that went very quickly. Tax collectors would collect far more than was due so that they could become rich. And we see men like Zacchaeus who became very rich in doing this. And so the Pharisees could have focused on others and their disobedience and not looked at their own lives and hearts. Well, it's not just outright theft that this prohibits. I think it's also important for us to realize that this commandment prohibits not just the stealing of things, but it prohibits the stealing of people. Yes, this commandment prohibits kidnapping. It's why in Exodus 21, verse 16, kidnapping is a capital crime. Even if the one who has been kidnapped is recovered unharmed, the very fact of kidnapping means that you have forfeited your life. And this is the great crime of slavery. Not just in history, but always. Man-stealing, it was called. And of course, it was rampant in Africa and in South America and in various places in the 18th, the, early, the late 17th and 18th centuries. It was how a slave population was built up. Men went into places and stole other men and took them from their homes and enslave them. And we have to understand that that is wrong, regardless of the race of the kidnapper, regardless of the race of the one kidnapped, regardless of the reasons given why some should be slaves. That is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And what I want to tell you is that goes on in our world today, every day. Slavery is not a 19th century phenomenon that was ended by the war between the states. There are places right here in the city of Houston, buildings where especially women have been stolen from other countries and are enslaved. And it's not right. And we need to stand for God's truth. There are places now, even today in Africa, where people are stolen, especially Christians, kidnapped 
often by Muslims, taken away from their homes, away from their families. And we need to categorically stand against this. It doesn't have anything to do with history or with statements. It is always wrong. But let me give you a third obvious example, which may not seem so obvious to you. I think this commandment prohibits outright theft. It prohibits kidnapping or man-stealing. But I think it also prohibits gambling. Because what is gambling? Gambling is a redistribution of wealth without work. But you might say, but pastor, in gambling, I'm just relying on luck. I think you need to go listen to the sermon on the third commandment. Because is there any such thing as luck? No. You might think that God has far more important things to do than to determine with absolute certainty which numbered slot the ball will fall in as the roulette wheel is spun. But it only falls where God wants it to fall. It's not luck. And the other thing about gambling is it is always a win-lose proposition. Do you know who always wins? The house. They have it set up so that even when you win, they get a portion of those winnings and they know that they are getting money for nothing. But lest you think I'm here to just rail against Las Vegas and riverboats. Gambling is also enshrined in our society. Almost every state has a lottery, which is really just a tax on the poor. Because you know the odds, if you will, you're better, you have a better chance of being bitten by a shark twice than of winning the lottery. And of course, what the state does is it takes this violation of the Eighth Commandment and it dresses it up with an excuse. It says, well, that's okay. It's for a good cause. We're going to put all of the money into education or we're going to do it for the kids. And of course, that doesn't help the kids of families who are destroyed by gamblers who are addicted, can't cease from gambling. There is no exception to this commandment for good causes. Exodus 20.15 doesn't say you shall not steal unless you have a really good reason for it. It's not what the text says. Remember, it's brief and therefore broad. Well, those are obvious violations. Let's think for a moment about subtle violations of this commandment. The, the nature of this commandment means that there will be subtle violations that we don't always think about because it's a generic command. It is a comprehensive command. It is not limited by time or by location or by reason. You shall not steal. Four words. And this commandment is given to us. It is once again a part of that so-called second table of the law. The section of the law that deals with man's interaction with other people. 
And this commandment shows us that the entirety of the community is in view here. What do I mean by this? Have you ever noticed that when someone steals something from someone else, it is a crime against the state, not just against that person? And the state can prosecute that crime, even if the one who has been stolen from says, no, 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 don't. Now, it may be harder to prosecute without a witness, but the state doesn't need permission of the one who has been stolen from. It is a crime against the state because theft is an outrage against the community that we live in. It is a violation of the terms of trust and community in which we live. Let me ask you a question. Some of you, I think, are old enough to remember this. Do you remember the days when you didn't lock the doors to your house? When you would go off somewhere and you would just leave the doors, not wide open, but unlocked, and you never really thought twice about it. Or you drove off in your car and you left your car unlocked in a parking lot. Let me ask you this, do you do that now? Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, I'm parked in our parking lot and my car is locked. Because to leave it unlocked is to invite theft. You can't trust your car parked in your own driveway. You've seen this on social media, people saying you can't leave your car unlocked. People will break into your car. They'll hope there's a garage door opener so they can break into your garage. And they hope the garage is connected to the house so they can break into the house. They'll rifle through your car for spare change or anything that they can find. Some of you have been violated in this way. You've had computers stolen. You've had guns stolen. You've had anything that you left in your vehicle stolen. You've had your houses broken into and things tossed aside. And if you've ever experienced that, the loss of the material goods is bad. But what's much worse? The loss of trust. You don't feel safe. You don't sleep well at night after that. You hear things that aren't making any noise. You see things that aren't there. You see, this commandment has been given by God to us to build community. To remind us that we should be safe in our persons and in what we own. And yet our society has turned this all upside down. Do you know where is one of the most common places where thefts occur? It's at weddings. A place of joy and, and togetherness and celebration. Now, why would that be? Because when we're joyful, our guard is down. And when we're at a wedding, ladies, don't you leave your purse on your chair? as you go to dance or as you go to get up and meet someone. Gentlemen leave their wallets in their coats at the coat check. So people know that's when we're most vulnerable. They don't care about trust. They don't care about society. They don't care about community. This is where the commandment comes in. But another subtle violation is in what I would call wrongful economics. That is, taking advantage 
of the poor and defrauding others in business. Now, I'm not talking about striking a good bargain. I'm talking about being deliberately deceptive in order to defraud someone. And, and this is something that even children are involved with. Now, I'll, I'll date myself, and you young people will have to tell me what the current example of this would be. But in my day, this happened when you traded baseball cards with someone. And you saw they had a card that was worth a lot of money, $100. And they didn't know what it was worth. They thought it was maybe worth a dollar or $5. And perhaps you might even say to them, oh, I'm sure that doesn't really have any value. If you, if you give me, the, I'll take that off your hands. I'll give you $3 for it, probably three times what it's worth. Knowing that you were going to defraud them. Now, I don't know what that is today. It could be Pokemon things. It could be, it could be cards. It could be games. But you understand the principle. And we do that in our lives, too. We can defraud others. We can deliberately deceive others as to what they're receiving in business. That's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And it shouldn't be seen among Christians. Then there is what we think about as harmless theft. You know, theft from people that don't even know they're being stolen from. Or they don't really deserve what they have. And I think perhaps the best example of this that gets us, especially red-blooded Texans, is tax theft. For who deserves money less than the government? And so... Does it really matter if I don't give the government what I'm owed? If I realize that I'm probably not going to get audited? I could be more than a little aggressive with my taxes. I can outright lie on my tax forms. And the odds of me being caught are very low. And the government doesn't need this money. And after all, the government spends money on all sorts of stupid things. Why should I give them my money? There's no reason to do that. Well, there is a reason. It's because you're obligated to. It's the law. And it's not just the law of the United States government. It's the law of God. The Lord tells you that you are to pay your taxes. The Lord Jesus Christ tells you that you are to pay your taxes. Another instance might be stealing from the office. What does it matter if I take this box of pens home, or these reams of paper. There's so much here, nobody's going to miss it, right? There's an old story of a young boy who was at school, and at school he stole a pencil, or a box of pencils, and the teacher caught him, and called in his father, and said, your son is stealing here from the school. You need to take care of this. We're going to have to discipline your son. He's going to be put in detention for a period of time. And on the walk back to the car, the father looked at his son and yelled at him and said, Son, why are you stealing pencils from school? You know if you need pencils, I'll just get you some from work. And that gives our mentality. Another kind of harmless theft is cheating. Do you wonder why, students, you don't cheat? It's not so that you might fail. 
It's because cheating is theft. It is taking knowledge that you don't have. It is stealing a grade that you have not earned. And it's violating this commandment. And even if the teacher does not catch you, even if they do not know at the school, God sees. And again, this should not be named among Christians. What about robbing God? What about stealing from God what he's owed? You know, again, we can rationalize this. God owns everything. He needs nothing. Why does he need this from me? Why do I need to give God my best? Why can't I give him the, the blind animal for the sacrifice or the lame to use an Old Testament picture? Why can't I skinny up my giving so that I could take a better vacation? God doesn't need a cruise. I'm the one that needs the cruise. Why can't I figure out where my budget should go and take myself into account. This is a theme that we see throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 15, Moses says, But if it, that is the lamb to be sacrificed, has any blemish, if it is lame or blind, or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You are to give God your best. And of course, Israel didn't obey God's law. And because of that, they experienced judgment from God. And so the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, we read, By offering polluted food upon my altar, you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifice. Is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? If you present that to your governor, will he accept you or show you favor? And of course, the answer is no. We need to understand that we owe God our best. But there's another aspect of robbing God, and it actually involves giving to God. It's giving for the sake of our own reputation and not for God's reputation. This is what Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of. Now, stop and think about them for a moment. You remember that they sold a plot of land that they had, and they, they gave a portion of that to the apostles for distribution in the church. They owned the land. Remember, private property is biblical. They did not have to sell that land. And they didn't have to give all of the proceeds of the land because the proceeds of the land belong to whom? Them. What was their sin though? What caused God to strike them down? It was because they gave and they said, we're giving all. And the reason they said that was because they wanted to look good before men and women. That was their offense. And so if we are giving in a way that we hope to make ourselves look good, to enhance our reputation, we are violating this commandment. I said this to you many months ago when we were going through the book of Second 
Corinthians. If that's how you want to give, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need it. What He needs is your heart. He wants to make you more and more like Jesus. He wants to make you generous like Jesus is generous. So it's about the heart. Well, there are obvious violations of this commandment. There are more subtle violations, things we need to think more about. But I want to conclude this evening by asking the question, why do we break this commandment? Because I want to remind you that there is no commandment that you do not break, either in thought or in word or in deed, every single day. The law of God is that broad. Why do we break it? I think first and foremost, it is in us a failure to trust God's provision. It's really when we steal something, it's a declaration against God's providence. God, what you have given me is insufficient. I can't survive on it. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know my needs. You don't know what I have to have. And so therefore, I need to take it. For myself. It's saying I know better than you do, God. So what's the solution for that? If we're tempted toward theft, if we are tempted to fail to trust the Lord, what is the solution? I want to suggest to you that the solution is to see God as your provider. This may not be the first thing that comes to your mind. But the solution to a violation of Exodus 20, verse 15, is found in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. What? I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When we see that God is our provider, when we know that we shall not want because he is our shepherd, then we will trust in his provision. I think a second reason why we break this commandment is greed or envy. And this is a heart issue. Each of these commandments gets to the heart. It really is about selfishness. It is saying, I need more than I have. And therefore, I must get it. Now, the Bible describes the solution to this way of thinking as an entire change of heart and life. Because it's a heart issue, our hearts must be changed. And so, it's fascinating the way Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4. Verse 28, he writes, Let the thief no longer steal. But there's no period. There's a comma. 
but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Do you see that? Paul goes beyond telling you, do not steal, to saying explicitly, but labor and work with your hands to provide with others, to be generous. Now, we should have already expected that. Paul is a student of the Ten Commandments, and you will remember back some months ago when we saw that one of the main ways in which we are to interpret the Ten Commandments is that when something is prohibited, the contrary duty is commanded. So, you shall not murder means you shall preserve life. Next, when we come to you shall not bear false witness means you shall tell the truth. And that's what Paul's saying. And that requires a changed heart. It requires more than just avoiding sin. It requires actively following after the will of God. And the only way that you can do that is to be inhabited by the Spirit of God, to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, to have a heart that has been turned from stone to flesh. And so if you're here this evening and you are tempted to break this commandment in any of the ways that I have described to you, then you need to begin with Jesus. You need to go to Jesus. And if you haven't been to Jesus, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then that is where you must begin. You don't start with a list of how I can avoid theft. That won't help you. You need more than a list. You need a new heart. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to pursue after Him. You need to pray. You need to read God's Word. You need to be accountable. You need to follow after your Savior. A third and final reason why I think we break this commandment is that we have an exaggerated view of our own importance. Self-importance. Stealing is as much about how I view myself and others as it is about stuff. When we think that we are more worthy than others, that others are undeserving of what they have, that we can take whatever we want at will, then once again, we need to look at our hearts. We have self-importance and pride run rampant. But instead, what the Bible tells us is that we are to be so far from stealing that we are to be known for our generosity. We are to be known as a people of sacrifice for others. And you see this throughout the history of the church. You've heard me mention this before. Do you wonder why every hospital is Methodist this and Baptist that and Presbyterian this and Lutheran that? It's because the church invented hospitals. And it did so to be generous to others. They wanted others to know the blessing of what they had. And you can see this throughout our society. You see it in universities. You see it whenever there is a natural disaster. Who are the first people that are there? The churches. Christians. Helping. Providing. Encouraging. 
We are to be known as being generous because we are to imitate Jesus Christ and he is the generous one. He made himself of no reputation. He took on flesh for your sake, Christian. He became less so you could be redeemed. So what does that mean then for you today? Tonight, just one point of application that I want you to put into practice this week. Find ways to be more generous. That may not involve your checkbook or dollar bills at all. It may be being generous with your time. It may be being generous with your knowledge. It may be being generous with empathy. But again, as people of our Lord Jesus Christ, we should be known first and foremost in our community as those who protect the rights of others and who are generous for the benefit of others. Let's pray.